Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The History of England, episode 362, Free Men. I spoke last week with the problem England faced on the waters, with their international credibility in tatters, even with their garland of England, the Navy. The expedient Charles arrived at to solve said garland is famous, or was famous, maybe? But I think when the subject is talked about, in whatever tone, depending on your political preferences, what is sometimes left out is that the solution arrived at was indeed aimed at a specific and real need. The money was needed, and needed for the Navy, and it was spent there, as it happens. Anyway, fairness aside, the expedient arrived at was called ship money. Was that, I hear you say? Well, in a way, it's another traditional feudal Jew. Once upon a time, as all of you who have been with me for the last 11 years are aware, feudalism was based on land given for military service. And one of these ideas of military service for maritime counters was to provide ships to help the king defend the coast against attack. It's on this basis that merchantmen were also called on to serve in royal fleets. Now, over time, this requirement lay forgotten in a dusty room somewhere, and most other aspects of military service began to be served instead by making a payment. So, consider this. If you were an artistic young aristocrat, excellent taste in ruffs and sculpture, fine nose for a good sack and a lovely perfume, the last thing you wanted to do was put on a rough leather jerkin and breastplate, draw your sword and wallow around in mud trying to get at the Frenchman who stood at the end of a pike, 
while spending most of your trying time to forget the dysentery you managed to catch in camp. So, instead of that, you paid money to the king, who instead hired people who really enjoyed that sort of thing. And there are such people, so I'm told. So, in 1634, some bright spark, thought to be the Attorney General William Noy, came up with the idea that maybe the requirement for maritime counties to provide military service could be a good way of raising money in lieu of said service. To make sure it was legal, they would emphasise the claim that the same feudal principle lay behind ship money. A maritime county would send money instead of a ship, and the Crown would do the rest, either building or hiring a vessel. Actually, Charles had already tried it in 1628, but it hit such hostility that he'd chosen the path of the forced loan instead, and we know how popular that was. Now, delighted again with this idea, Charles mentally gave Noy a big kiss on his cherry lips and in June 1634 instructed the council to come up with proposals. It is clear, by the way, that Charles was very much involved throughout the process. Now, there was a problem. These kinds of impositions were normally levied only in times of emergency when the king was going to war, in real and present danger, as the film has it. Now, in Charles's view, there was a state of emergency going on already, and he was determined that as king, he was the only person anyway capable of identifying what did and did not constitute an emergency. So when the writs went out, they defined the emergency as the many depredations, violence and hostile acts committed daily on the narrow seas and even within his majesty's ports to the dishonour of his majesty's sovereignty in those seas and the infinite disturbance and prejudice to trade. Which, fair dinkum, does sound like a serious issue, but not exactly the same as the Spanish landing a force of pikemen at Margate or hordes of English turning up at Spanish ports demanding lager and fish and chips. There were rumblings. One of the sink ports actually refused to pay, when you'd have thought they were a dead cert. But no, they might provide a ship, because they had a few of those lying around, but at hard cash they drew the line. In London, the Lord Mayor and the Aldermen were told by their lawyers that money could not reasonably be obtained from the people without infraction of the laws by any way but the ordinary one of Parliament. Ah, Parliament, that old chestnut. The Lord Mayor and Alderman, however, stared into the abyss, which gave them a nasty wink, because the Privy Council hauled the Mayor up in front of them and demanded to know what was going on here. London decided their corpses wouldn't look good on this particular hill and ponied up anyway. But actually, despite said and many various rumblings, the first writ expects to raise 80,000 quid did raise pretty much that, or 90% of it. Plus, some ships also came from London, as it happens. Well, that was good, decided the Privy Council. We'll have a bit more of that. And in 1635, the writs were issued again. But this time, they had a flash of inspiration. Since ships would effectively be defending the whole country's good offices, let's levy it in places like mm, Loughborough which is famously short on coastline, let's levy it on everyone, not just to the maritime counties, who are at least accustomed to being involved in naval wars, but to all inland counties as well. Well, I never did, my granny would have said, rattling her teacup against Saucer suspiciously. Who had ever heard of such a thing? 
And then again, writs were issued in 1636. So not only was this looking pretty dodgy legally, not only was it unheard of as a tax in inland counties, but it was now beginning to look suspiciously like an annual tax, all without Parliament even getting a sniff. For Charles and the Privy Council, it was mouthwateringly exciting. Each year, it raised over 200,000 quid. Now, that is the equivalent of four parliamentary subsidies. We are quids in. And despite loud grumblings, 80 to 90% of people were paying up. Charles's money problems seemed to be over. Ship money could be the English version of the French tie or gabelle the basis of Louis XIV's glittering and warmongering absolutism to come. Parliament, schmarlament. It's worth noting that by this time, Treasurer Weston had died. He died in 1635. In the process of his administration, he had managed to clear all the king's £2 million debt, and the current account was in the black. Now that is quite an achievement. So the future was bright and shaped like a massive, gilded ship. Because that's what Charles used ship money for, a ship money fleet. The best example of said fleet was the Sovereign of the Seas, which was launched in 1637 and was an absolute whopper. Actually, if you'll forgive me the flight of fancy, I would say the Sovereign of the Seas was everything Charles stood for, made boat. It was the epitome of absolute majesty. The very first three-decker, carrying 102 guns, the next biggest ship in Europe was the French Couronne, and that had a measly two-bit 80-8 guns. And of course, just two decks? Ha! Huh, so last year! She was armed entirely with bronze cannon, each chased lovingly with the royal arms, and bronze was wickedly expensive. And the decoration, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, was to die for. Forget naval strategy, look at that gilding. The Dutch actually called her the Golden Devil because she was decorated entirely in gold and black, no colours. You could build a warship on the cost of the gilt alone. Now, the Sovereign of the Seas was an achievement. It, and ships like it, began to restore England's naval reputation. In a straight fight, she would indeed be formidable. Utterly Utterly useless at the main problem of catching pirates, of course. By the time she'd opened her gun ports, the Barbary pirate would be back in Salais, selling their collection of Cornish citizens in the slave markets. It is worth noting that Charles sought to sell this to his people by making it absolutely clear that this money he was collecting would indeed be spent on a fleet, and it was. Charles provided the sheriffs collecting the tax with accounts that they could show people, demonstrating this point. As I've said, the tax was pretty successful, although there was lots of trouble and upset caused on the way. So, for example, ship money reached much deeper into society than a traditional subsidy, so this directly affected far more people than normal. In Essex, for example, a parliamentary subsidy would fall normally on 3,200 people. Ship money was due to be paid by 14,500 people, so four times the number of people. The Venetian ambassador reported that many thought that the king was acting contrary to the law of the land, and certainly repugnant to the uses and forms observed by the people up to the present time. 
but most of the grumbling were individual complaints about the assessment rather than the principle. But there were so many of these sorts of complaints that Charles actually instituted a new additional Privy Council every Sunday to respond to those objections. Even in the early days, however, it is important to look at what these grumblings and complaints about assessment actually mean, because they are more than just grumblings about individual payments. Now, the impulse towards obedience was powerful in English society. The sheriffs enforcing this through local constables held a deep influence and control over society. The fear of social disorder was an, an obsession. The complaints about assessment were in fact the only legitimate way to resist the tax. And they were so numerous that sheriffs hated collecting the tax as intolerably antagonistic and hard. To give just one example from many possible, in Northamptonshire, John Dryden found it all so awful he complained until he was replaced as sheriff by the Privy Council. His replacement, Cocaine, then wrote to Lord about the tax. I find much difficulty... For since few or none will pay what they are assessed without distress, others either willfully oppose or disturb my servants and officers in making distresses. And another sheriff reported, I will do the utmost of my duty to bring in all behind, and hope your lordships will think I do what I can from piece to piece. For I protest, there is no penny that is not forced, God help me, amongst the people." But, as I say, the call to obedience was strong and the penalties for non-payment were severe and, in the end, few felt up to absolute refusal to pay. Which doesn't yet bring us to the Greek patriot, John Hamden, but it does bring us to other agents of rebellion, Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick, and William Fiennes, Viscount Say and Seal. Now, if you are looking for resistance initially, the group and friends and peers around Warwick is the first stone to unturn. Warwick was the type of grandee that Charles liked around him at court, in the sense that he was of ancient and grand lineage. So Warwick was very much the courtier. But he was not the kind of grandee whose advice Charles would listen to, because Warwick was deeply Calvinist, Puritan if you prefer. So never appointed to the Privy Council, Warwick felt excluded from Charles's inner circle and objected strongly to his religious policies, and to the overriding of Parliament. And the only remaining forum left to him to provide the council that was a tradition of his class was Parliament, of course, the House of Lords. Warwick then was an Essex boy, as it happens, and his house there at Lees was described by one royalist critic as the common rendezvous of all schismatic preachers. His house in London, Warwick House, meanwhile, was where the like-minded courtiers gathered together the likes of Say and Seal, the Earls of Manchester, Brooke, Essex, Bedford. The circle of Warwick peers were strongly Calvinist, strongly parliamentarian. They fully agreed with Simmons Jews, the diarist, when he wrote in his journal that with the ship money, the liberty of the subjects of England received the most deadly and fatal blow it had been sensible of in 500 years. It was Warwick who took action first. In 1636, he organised a campaign of non-payment in the county of Essex on a massive scale. And then in January 1637, he decided to bite the bullet. He would not hide his resentment in deferential silence anymore. He would confront Charles at court, in his den. 
in what historian John Adamson refers to as one of the most remarkable altercations in Charles's entire reign, Warwick confronted Charles in person and demanded a complete reorientation of royal policy. Parliament must be called, war must be made on Spain and the Palatinate recovered, and he grandly claimed to be representing the whole nation and that ordinary people like his tenants could not bear the prospect of living under the stigma of having signed away the liberty of the realm. He portentously declaimed that if Charles took his advice, Parliament would support him all the way. Charles reportedly kept his calm and smiling and composed, though later would threaten prosecution through the Court of the Exchequer. The Warwick House Circle were rumoured to have drawn up a petition to demand the return of Parliament publicly, but their nerve failed and it never appeared. And by autumn 1637, pretty much all the county of Essex had duly paid up and the protest, for the moment, was over. In February, Charles sought backup from the judges and asked for a judgment on the legality of ship money. He prepared the ground carefully, of course. It would be unforgivable if he allowed the judges to come up with the wrong answer so embarrassing for their professional reputations. And so... Chief Justice Finch went round to every single one of the twelve judges with a letter from Charles demanding compliance, and no doubt a personal reminder from Finch that Charles rewarded compliant judges very well when they retired. Spookily, the judges found for the king, who'd have thunk it. The king, they said, could levy ship money when the good and safety of the kingdom in general is concerned and the whole kingdom is in danger and that the king was the sole judge, both of the danger and how the same is to be prevented. Otherwise known as a wash as complete and shiny white as could be desired. Charles was delighted. Charles's self-confidence ballooned. Charles's aggression ballooned with it. He could finish this, he could finish this here, and he could finish it now. Filled with a feeling of invulnerability and with the judges apparently... In the back pocket of his gloriously silky pantaloons, Charles decided that a test case would be just the ticket now to crush a ship-money refusenik, would send the right message to the world. He might have felt differently had he known that many of the judges had actually deep misgivings about their ruling they'd just agreed to, but if he did know that, he ignored it. William Fiennes, Lord Say and Seal, was equally desperate to take Charles on in a test case. He did the equivalent of jumping up and down in front of Charles, waving his arms and shouting, Me! 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 Take me! He refused to pay ship money and saw his cattle distrained. When his lawyer, Oliver Sinjan, advised him to take it to court, he tried to do so, but when he did, Charles had it taken in star chamber, away from the public eye, and prosecuted it on entirely different grounds than ship money. He did not want to take on such a powerful figure. He wasn't an idiot. Instead, he chose a relatively obscure and hopefully, therefore, relatively defenceless member of the minor gentry. Enter John Hamden, 43 years old. I keep referring to him as the Great Patriot because I was sure that he was once referred to as such. But actually, I think I may be wrong, so I'll stop now. Anyway, John Hamden was financially comfortable without being rich and was an inhabitant of Buckinghamshire near Aylesbury, including the manor of Great Hamden, which could be nominative determinism in the minds of supporters of the good old cause. 
he was educated at Tame Grammar and as a lawyer at the Inns of Court. In 1616, he walked his bride Elizabeth Simeon from her house to the church at Purton. Purton is not a million miles away from where I live, and I happen to know a couple who also walked to the church there to get married in conscious imitation of John Hampden, which I think shows a nice respect for the grand English narrative of history, and I approve. By 1634, Elizabeth had given birth to ten children, seven of whom survived. Now, Hamden was a Calvinist, a cousin of Cromwell, as it happens. But there's really no sign of anything revolutionary in his early years, although his mother apparently thought he was capable of great things. But that's the way mothers roll, isn't it? It was at the Parliament of 1626 that Hamden began to get connected. He is curious in that he's not the charismatic figure like Pym or Lilburn or Cromwell. He did not speak very often. He fulfilled all his roles with honour and competence, and yet again, he was never really the leader at big-ticket events. He's always a little off-centre. Clarendon would later write that his influence and reputation came from management of people, ability to organise others and events. And yet his reputation throughout history is very strong. I suspect there are two reasons. One is Conrad Russell's judgment, and I, of course, am not worthy so much as to pick up the typos under Conrad's table, that his skill was in the background, quietly working away with others, managing affairs, working in committee and parliament, getting things done. He held things together. People wanted him around, including the great men who didn't normally involve commoners, because he was a professional, with good judgment on how to achieve results, rather than glorying in grand gestures. This very quietness, efficiency and humility, I think, is one of the reasons for his fame because there are no great conundrums or controversies to mar his name. Also, he probably made a good career move by dying in 1643 in battle, before everything got so complicated. Anywho, in 1627, Hamden again popped his head above the parapet and proved that another of his characteristics was courage and moral purpose. He refused to pay the forced loan and was imprisoned for almost a year, in the 1628 Parliament, he helped Pym draw up the indictment against the cleric Mannering. And he also made one of his few speeches within which he neatly encapsulated his thinking and those in his party. Here we go. Here is one. An innovation of religion suspected. Is it not high time to take it to heart and acquaint his majesty? Secondly, alteration of government. Can you forbear when it goes no less than the subversion of the whole state? Thirdly, hemmed in with enemies. Is it now a time to be silent, and not to show to his majesty that a man who has so much power uses none of it to help us? If he be no papist, papists are friends and kindred to him. So in this you again see the close connection of religion and politics. A king, deeply distrusted by parliamentarians like Hamden, suspected of removing or emasculating parliament, to bring in popery. Is it just me, but I cannot resist thinking of bowls of perfumed dried flowers every single time I say popery. It is most distracting, and I'm sorry. Anyway, this speech then placed 
John Hamden, firmly in the inner circle of the Warwick Pier network, along with John Pym, and he was never to leave it. After the 1629 dissolution, though, not much happens with Hamden politically. We see him at home, appointing a preacher and a vicar, carrying on a correspondence with other political types, such as Harry Vane and the incarcerated John Eliot. He gets peripherally involved in colonial venture, though not as an investor. Many other radicals do, by the way, so Warwick, Holland, Pym and many others in particular get involved in the Caribbean Providence Island colony, a super unsuccessful venture, which also has the dubious distinction of being the first English colony where over the half of the population were enslaved. At this time, it's possible that Hamden, like many other of the godly such as Cromwell, seriously considered emigration to the new colonies in England. If so, it was with a certain amount of irony, the king who called his attention back to England. Charles then was feeling pretty bullish after the ruling of the judges in his favour, and decided that yes, he would grant say and seal his desire for a test case, but no, he wasn't going to give that satisfaction to him himself. He was going to pick on an easier target, a country squire. There might also be a certain amount of vindictiveness in Charles's decision. Hamden's refusal of the forced loan and his speech in Parliament had annoyed him. Also, Hamden's uncle Edmund Hamden had been one of the five knights, so there's a family connection with refuse nicking. So, maybe that's why he picked his name from the list. A relatively lowly figure and revenge. Also, Obi-Wan may have said, yes, this is the drone you're looking for, but that's speculation. But it may also be that Charles recognised that Hamden had issued a challenge. Because in fact, Hamden had been assessed for ship money in a number of different parishes, since his land holdings were quite spread out. Most of them, he actually paid up ship money without any dispute. Only at Stoke Mandeville did he refuse to pay the small assessment of 20 shillings, which is just one quid. This, then, was a clear challenge of a particular type. Because what Hamden was saying was, look, it's not the money, I can afford all of this. It is the principle that's at stake here. It is the principle that is wrong. This is very different to objecting to an individual assessment. This was a challenge to the very basis of the king's right to tax Parliament. For whatever reason then, Charles chose John Hamden as his prey. Time to crush the refusenik, the disobedient. Time to bring him, and others like him, to the royal heel. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In August 1637, then, John Hamden was called before the King's Bench for refusing to pay his ship money assessment of a quid. The Privy Council were thoroughly aware just how important this case was, and debate there had been intense. The council was divided as to whether or not this was the right thing to do, or whether it would be far better to continue the softly, softly approach, avoid direct confrontations. Hawkish councillors like Coventry were keen to get this thing nailed. Wiser heads, in this case Lord and Wentworth, thought it was taking an unnecessary risk. Look, the dog seems to be sleeping, so why poke at it with a stick? But in the end, 
the Hawks prevailed. Just to make sure the point was thoroughly made to the world, the court was then referred to a special court, retained for the biggest of cases, the court of the Exchequer Court Chamber. It wouldn't normally be the sort of place used for pursuing 20 shillings, a pretty paltry sum, but Charles was making a point to his subject here. Note bene, folks, listen up, watch and learn. Exemplary justice, I think it's called. Setting an example, I mean, rather than justice notable for its excellence. Well, if Charles thought Hamden was weak and alone, he was wrong. Hamden's work at the 1628 Parliament had connected him firmly into Warwick and Pym's network. It is quite possible that Hamden himself, in his 1628 speech, had recognised that a confrontation was coming, however long it took, and whatever form it came in. OK, so as the trial opened, Charles was granted his wish. Interest throughout the country was high. Attention was fixed quickly onto the court and the case and what would be said. In pigsties and mangle fields up and down the country, the legal issues were chewed over and sides taken. Well, I'd probably exaggerate for effect, but you know what I mean. Interest was high. People knew what was happening and they took note. In a letter, one correspondent wrote that Hamden's refusal is all the talk of London at present. The Venetian ambassador described a general astonishment. Everyone wonders at the king's goodness in allowing the public discussion of such a nature. Well, public discussion and public defeat was very much the point, of course. Now, in such a court, the best government lawyers in the country would be representing Charles's case. The Solicitor General, Edward Littleton, and the Attorney General, John Banks. Hamden had two lesser-known lawyers. The first was Oliver St. John, a client of the Earl of Bedford and a contemporary of Cromwell's at Cambridge University. He'd been in trouble with the Crown before, actually, when caught circulating a wildly absolutist tract, presumably using it as an example of where Charles might be leading everyone. He was a rather quiet, reserved man, who seems to have kept himself to himself as much as possible, but Clarendon would later describe him as beloved of Parliament. So, obviously, his view was respected, and the Earl of Bedford was no mean patron. The other lawyer was Robert Hoban, a critic generally of Charles's money-raising ventures in the personal rule, an interesting case of a man who, through the 1640-42 crisis ahead of us, would start firmly in the parliamentarian camp, but by 1642 would be so alarmed by the radicalism emerging that he would return to the king's side. There will be many such. Anyway, there we are. It's November 1637. Cold, dark, autumnal, crammed all of us into the Exchequer Court Chamber. The 12 highest judges of the land there in all their finery. The defendant and his lawyers. The prosecuting lawyers. The seats packed. The hubbub. Not just a court of law, but theatre, drama, politics. Hamden, St. John and Hoban had a strategy. Whereas at the start of ship money resistance the approach had been to argue the technicalities, now they were to go for a bigger prize. That there was to be no taxation without the consent of Parliament, no taxation without representation, if you will. Oliver St. John opened the binning. The King had no right to demand the provision of ships. His right extended only to an emergency in time of war, and yet, look around you, we're at peace. If the king needed money, the only legal way to get it was through Parliament. His argument hit a chord in the crowd watching. There was a lot of applause, a hum of conversation and agreement. 
Littleton then rose to, to reply on behalf of the king, and he took the approach of necessity. Look, the actions of pirates meant that the situation was urgent, and there was no time to go through the lengthy process of asking Parliament. Money was needed, and money was needed right now. Robert Hoban rose next and took St John's argument further. By the fundamental laws of England, the King cannot, out of Parliament, charge the subject. No, not for the common good. Even if danger was imminent, the subject's right to their own property overrode the King's claim of prerogative, and Parliament's consent was required. Well, as it happens, Hoban's speech may have lacked a little impact in the court, because he seems to have had a difficult speech impediment, but the argument struck a chord with the judges. In the final response then, John Banks went large and high level, leaving the specifics of the case behind. As justification, he went for the absolute power of the king, who he claimed was the first mover among those orbs of ours, the soul of this body whose proper act is to command. Good point about those orbs, I thought. Anyway, Banks's view, orbs aside, was that no one had the right to criticise the king's use of his powers because there was simply no one high enough who was able to do so. We are back to James I's point that if the people were subjected to the tyranny of a bad king, all they could do was bow their heads, grin and bear it. This, in the end, is what the political strand of the civil wars was all about. It is a statement at least as political as legal and gave the judges a dilemma. If they chose for Hamden, Banks had put them in the dock as rebels. The arguments were now done. Now judgment would be delivered by the 12 judges, each giving their opinion in turn. Bear in mind, incidentally, that these are of course all the same judges who earlier in the year had been prevailed upon to give a judgment in favour of the legality of ship money to Charles under personal pressure from John Finch and his letter. This makes for an awkward moral, social and legal situation. How would they react was the question. Now that they had a specific case to consider and now that they were in the public eye. The courtroom was by now absolutely rammed. People began queuing at dawn and still couldn't get in. As one writer complained to his friend in the country... The business now talked of in town is all about the question of ship money. The king is pleased to give way to those subjects that refuses to pay, whereof John Hamden is one, to have their counsel to argue the case in point of war in the exchequer chamber before all judges. I cannot relate any particulars, because I heard it not, although I was up by peep of day to that purpose. I was so far from getting into the room that I could not get near the door by two or three yards the crowd was so great. <laughs> Letters like this were flying around the country. St Paul's Walk was humming with it. The public sphere was engaged, ladies and gentlemen. The public sphere was engaged. The government of the realm was in the dock. Well, the presiding judge was one Robert Barclay, and he laid into demolishing Hamden's case with some enthusiasm. He dismissed the idea that ship money was a subsidy, it was payment in lieu of service, and there was sufficient danger on the high seas to warrant the action, and anyway... The idea that only Parliament could charge the subject was tripe. The law knows no king-yoking policy, thundered Barclay. He declared, for the king. Next up was Lord Chief Justice Finch, noted anyway for his robust defence of the king's prerogative. 
though as an MP he had presented a petition against the billeting of troops, it's to be fair, he did so, just for your information, in the most delightfully obsequious terms that I need to find a way to get into a conversation sometime and see if I can then escape with my life. Sir, he said in his petition, you are the breath of our nostrils and the light of our eyes. By heck, breath of our nostrils, you, steady John, see if you can give a friend today the ultimate accolade of being the breath of your nostrils. I'm sure they'd be honoured, though they might not see you alone in the future. Anyway, Finch was also, of course, the Speaker of the House who'd been held in his chair during John Eliot's famous speech. So it surprised no one that Finch came out for the King. He had the power, declared Finch, to charge his subjects for the necessary defence and good of the realm, and subjects were bound to obey. By the hair of my nostrils, it was not going well. Two more of the judges took this same line laid out for them that the king's prerogative was supreme and not dependent on Parliament, so that was four out of the twelve. Then more judges tried to duck all this politically charged thing about prerogative versus Parliament, and they stuck to the technicalities. Was ship money a tax, and therefore subject to Parliament, or was it a feudal due, money in lieu of service, and therefore not a subsidy which over which Parliament had any power? But there were others now who began to take a different line, so Justices Brampton and Davenport also hid behind the technicality, but took a different view. They held that the king could only demand a service, that is, the provision of a physical ship, not money, and that since Hampden was being tried for debt, this was money we're talking about here, it was clear money was involved, and they found for Hampden. Not exactly a ringing constitutional judgment to get people onto the barricades, but look, a win is a win. Sadly, though, by now, the court had effectively gone against Hamden. His stand was going to end in the defeat of his case, and he would be distrained for his quid. Seven judges out of the twelve had declared for the king. Charles had won. He might have won the battle, but had he won the war? A third judge held for Hamden, and then there were two more ringing rejections of the king's case, enough to get the blood beating in the ears from a couple of olders, as it happens, 76 and 77 years old respectively. Don't know if that's relevant. You can draw your own conclusions. Both of them have been the most reluctant of the judges in the earlier general ruling about ship money, and although they'd finally bent the pressure, it had clearly been weighing on their minds. So, Lord Chief Justice Hutton was a child of Cumberland, where the air is clear and free, and declared straightforwardly that ship money was contrary to the laws of the realm. He then launched into a bit of a rant, I'm ashamed to say. Presumably his children looked embarrassed and rolled their eyes. The subjects of England are free men, not slaves. Free men, not villains. Here is no apparent necessity of an invasion. Therefore, by law, they cannot be thus compelled to part with their interest in their goods. He launched into a full-blown vindication of the rights of Parliament. Not only did he make it clear that ship money could not be raised on the base of the King's writ without the assent of Parliament, but he also did a bit of quoting of the statutes of Edward III. Because although I am constantly reminding you that Parliament is not a standing part of the legally defined constitution, yet it's an occasional body that the King calls when he needs counsel, and to graciously allow his subjects to bring their own petitions, actually 
it had already been decided in the reign of Edward III that parliaments should be held annually. Who managed to make us forget that then? The decision had been sort of shoveled off into the monarch drawer labelled odds and ends. So Richard Hutton cited the statutes and asked how it had come about that this kingdom which hath flourished by parliaments should now forget a frequent kind of government by parliament. Good point, Ron, baby, cried the crowd. Well, they didn't actually, but they did burst spontaneously into much applause of the people. John Crook similarly braved the wrath of the king. Apparently, he had also had something of an ear-bashing from his wife, Mary Bennett, the daughter of a mayor of London, whom he'd married when he was 49 and Mary was but 19. It seems Mary might have been a bit of a firebrand, exhorting George to step over that threshold that he'd hung back from earlier in the year. Crook remarked rather sourly that the whole business should never have reached the court. It should have been decided at a public assembly of the state. Hmm, what's one of those then? Let me think. Oh yes, Parliament. He then made it clear that according to the laws of England, a man had a freedom and property in his goods and estates that could only be taken from him with his personal consent or by his consent as expressed in Parliament and that nothing at all escaped this rule and that no necessity nor danger can allow a charge which is a breach of the laws. Right, so we started this case in November 1637 and it was now June 1638. The country had been gripped for over eight months with this debate and meanwhile new writs had been issued for the fourth year of collection of what was now clearly an annual tax. But in June 1638 it finally came to the time that all the judges' opinions had been heard and judgment was duly recorded. The court had found for the king by seven votes to five a victory then for Charles. But again Or was it really? It was in fact a very close call. Now maybe, if it had been unanimous, it would have had the right impact that Charles wanted. But 7 to 5 was way too close for comfort. Also, most of the judges who had declared for the king had done so on rather technical grounds. While those who did go large, like Barclay, went large on royal powers so much that they panicked the people a bit. When he said... The king is law, law speaking, a living, breathing and acting law. People's jaws hung open a bit. It felt horribly extreme. In one historian's view, it would have been better for Charles if he'd lost. He had seemingly got some credit for allowing open debate of the case, and although he'd initiated action, he was at least allowing the legality of the tax to be judged in open court, rather than being crushed in private in some back alley somewhere. But the fact that he won turned Hamden into a hero and made Charles look like a tyrant trying to crush the little man. Clarendon certainly thought that despite the result, Hamden's ship money case was a major turning point against the king. Prior to that, he felt that many had been willing to pay the levy as testimony of their affection. What Clarendon means is that people might have had doubts, as we've heard they did, And although now there was a ruling saying that it was the king's rights officially, it was a judgment that appeared to be made on very dodgy, political-sounding grounds that people suspected was just not the law. It was now seen as a political argument, not a legal one, and so many began to feel that they were 
bound in conscience not to submit. Debate is still rather split because there is an argument to say that in practical terms it did not make any difference. The 1638 levy was also a success, so surely people can't have cared that much. It did begin to seriously break down in 1639, but then there were other problems going on, like additional taxes to deal with the Scots. So, the argument runs that there were grumblings, but hey, there always are. It's tax. No one likes parting with the hard-earned. But in fact, the evidence probably points to Charles paying a very heavy political price for the ship money case. And a wiser, more canny and politically aware person, such as his dad, for example, would have ducked the very idea of a legal challenge, and that overconfidence, an arrogant conviction in his rights, and a passionate demand for absolute obedience as a signifier of loyalty led him into a public relations disaster. I'm going to turn to the historian Conrad Russell here. He makes the point that the pain felt by the gentry in implementing this dodgy tax against the constant drag of resistance in their beloved countries and their own doubts tore at the very fundamental nature of the English state. It threatened a cooperation between the king and county gentry for which no substitute existed and for which no substitute was desired. It also challenged the trust between gentry and the communities they led. Complaints and evasions from communities became more violent and more determined after this case. So in Lyme Regis it was said, What foolery is this? that the country in a general peace can be thus much taxed and oppressed with the payment of great sums to maintain the king's titles and honours. In Kent they were equally cynical. The king having neither then nor now any declared enemy, this made much discourse on how the king could have any necessity that had no enemy. Even if the tax was for the fleet, and Charles at least seemed genuine in this, it has to be said, There was a general lack of belief that the king knew what he was doing anyway. The West Country people had no great belief that the king's ships would do any good against the Turks. There was now a strong element of social disorder in the resistance, no longer hiding behind the technicalities of individual assessments. So such as in Northamptonshire, when the bailiffs came to enforce the tax in 1638, women, boys and children with pitchforks and their aprons full of stones were shouting... Knock them down! Beat out their brains! Hang them rogues! John Hamden Stand brought the issue about the personal rules and royal prerogative into the public space for open discussion. The judgments of Crook and Hutton were reprinted and widely circulated and read. Salt was rubbed daily into the king's wound. Some of the king's supporters were outraged by Hutton's disloyalty, and one of them, an Arminian clergyman, Reverend Thomas Harrison, accused Hutton publicly in Westminster Hall of high treason. Harrison was prosecuted by the judge. He was fined 5,000, and Hutton was awarded 10,000 pounds of damages by a sympathetic jury. Not only was that a vindication of Hutton's case, a further humiliation for the king, but a great opportunity once more to discuss the issues. Crook, meanwhile, was so popular that he came a bit of a hero, with a popular gag that ship money could be gained, said the wags, by hook, but not by crook. Arf, and if you will, arf. Dissent and debate extended well beyond London and all across the provinces. Some complained about the number of taxes, 
In March 1638, a Gloucestershire woman, Elizabeth, claimed that because of ship money, she would not be able to live. Though in point of fact, England was lightly taxed by comparison with Europe, which was part of the problem, of course. And then when a neighbour loyally said to her, the king must be served, Elizabeth's son retorted, if that be so, the king must have all, I would the king were dead. A constable in Northamptonshire described ship money as an intolerable exaction, burden and oppression. The Venetian ambassador reported that the Hamden verdict was received with incredible bitterness and malediction against the judges, as influenced more by authority than justice. And he worried that there was a disposition to revolution in England to force the king to observe the law. Well, those are doom-laden and prescient words. Let's be clear, though. Even the Warwick circle that supported Hamden, and still less Hamden himself, had any thoughts at all of rebellion at this point. Their earnest desire was to serve the king, but all of them felt excluded from the king's council. As one commentator records, In a monarchy, what drives a man into an opposition stance is not his convictions, but the king's attitude to those convictions. A man is pushed into opposition not because the king disagrees with him, but because the king no longer wishes to hear him or be served by him. The only way to give counsel to the king, if not one of his inner circle, people like Warwick and Say and Seal, was Parliament. After Hamden's stand, the pressure to recall Parliament would grow stronger and stronger yet. Well, there we go, a bit of a long one. Next week, we will have to come down from the political barricades, but we will be called instead to a barricade every bit as important to the godly, the barricades religious. I shall meet you on those barricades next time. Until then, thank you all very much for listening. In the words of Blondie, I am always touched by your presence. Good luck and have a great week.